Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. And today we get to have Mel Tory with us. And Mel is the founder and CEO of Autonomous Solutions. And Mel started Autonomous Solutions in 2000, bootstrapping the company into a world-leading autonomous vehicle solutions company. So that means they help mining, agriculture, automotive, government, and manufacturing industries with remote control and fully automated uh, solutions. So I guess Mel was quite ahead of his time. So they've automated about 75 different vehicle types, which is pretty amazing. So I asked Mel to be on the show to hear about uh, hear about the history of autonomous solutions and how the tech has changed, had developed since 2000 and where he sees it going. And uh, if we have time at the end, I'm also curious what he does to feed his basketball fanaticism. So Mel, thanks for uh, joining us today. Great to be here. So, yeah, like I said, you were definitely, I, I mean, everyone knows about autonomous vehicles now, but uh, they didn't back in 2000. And But before we get into that, can you maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to start uh, Autonomous Solutions? Sure. I was raised on a farm up in Alberta, Canada, in the middle of nowhere, and uh, drove in a circle 16 hours a day on the <laughs> farm, and definitely some of that kind of mind-numbing work motivates you to get an education and then just happened to work out that in getting that education, we were able to discover some ways to automate that driving in a circle 18 hours a day. So kind of a fun journey there. And so went to Utah State University down in Utah and John Deere saw a paper I wrote in my graduate program and asked us to start doing uh, autonomous agriculture for them. And so we did two years of work for them, and then they asked us to start a company to partner with, and we spun out in 2000 to start doing agricultural robotics, and then diversified into mining and cleaning and security and these other markets that we're in now. So kind of a general story. Interesting. So when you were – so how, how do you get – into autonomous vehicles was it in grad was it in school and uh why what what uh, prompted interest was it being on a farm and seeing the monotony of driving around a vehicle yeah it's a good question i think it was always hard to choose between computers electrical and mechanical engineering and one day i saw a wheelchair driving by itself down a hallway in my undergrad program and started to chase it and find out who the professor was started begging him for a job and finally got in sorting bolts uh, into the lab and then uh, they paid for my graduate work and it just seemed like a great combination of all of the technologies the software side the mechanical side the electrical side and and so i just gravitated towards it got excited about it and it was really that coincidence of the hallway that really got me excited about it Huh. And and when you, when you started uh, back in 2000, who else was doing autonomous vehicles? Was there many other folks? When we spun out or when I started in robotics? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess when you – well, either one. But when you spun – I was thinking when you spun out. Yeah, I guess it was still pretty young. I think Cat had started back when I got into robotics in the, the early to mid-'90s. And then – 
they had started working with some construction equipment, uh, started playing with some mining trucks. That was kind of the, the state of the art at the time. And we were doing it more under Department of Energy funding. And that was really government initiative to look at handling nuclear waste. And so that was really the the state of the art at the time was, hey, we need to address this hazardous material handling. And so the government was willing to spend money at that point. So that was really the start of the funding at the lab that I was a part of. Gotcha. Okay. And then there was some early workings at uh, Carnegie Mellon University and in their NREC group in the construction mining side with CAD at the time. And that was kind of the the uh, kind of the state of the art at that point. They were starting to patent some things and do some pilot trials. Okay, but not a lot. And and before we get too far, can you maybe just give an overview on autonomous solutions, like the number of employees and um, you know maybe a, a description? Unless I did it, unless we, I did a, enough justice, but uh, yeah, it might be better to hear yeah. from you <laughs> before we get too far. We are. We're over 100 people. We're actually a group of companies for liability, isolation, and investment flexibility. So I have a an ASI mining company, an ASI cleaning, an ASI security, an ASI ag, an ASI automotive. And so we have bootstrapped from the beginning. We haven't had any investors to date. And we've just been funded through convincing monster OEMs like the John Deere's of the world and monster companies like big mining companies to fund us to develop technology for them. And so uh, I think we've raised over 85 million in that kind of money where there's no equity, but it's strategic and very blessed that way to have been able to find people who are interested enough in betting on us in the middle of Utah to bring these kind of products to the market. So, so very fortunate in that way. And, we basically run agile scrum. So we have teams in each of those markets with business leaders that are growing each of those markets to their full potential. And gotcha. yeah, so and we've got about a hundred acre proving ground up in Utah and basically test uh, mining trucks and farm tractors and security robots and floor scrubbing robots uh, at our facilities and in the surrounding area. You, you must have one of the, more cooler uh, office uh, slash locations there are, <laughs> I would think. Yeah, it's fun. pretty fun. Yeah, <laughs> I would yeah. The, the command center with, we have ongoing durability testing for functional safety and product validation ongoing all the time. So people just show up and there's always robot vehicles out running, whether it's on the asphalt test <laughs> tracks or out in the farm field and there's a command center that you can look out through the big windows to see the equipment running and look at the, the software and change the, the missions and things like that on the fly. So, so I love the story that, you know, that you, you did bootstrap it and that you didn't take outside uh, f- uh, equity essentially for ca- or cash for equity, which is pretty amazing. And that's really hard to do. And, uh, you know, I'm curious if how, if you can't disclose this, that's okay. But how you structured like those joint ventures? Would you know? Let's say you partner with an agricultural firm. Would they get like the exclusive on the technology, or how would how would that work? Reveal my secret. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, pretty. <laughs> no, no problem at all. Okay. 
pretty pretty standard agreements okay. where we were able to get to the point where people wanted the technology enough and there aren't many providers out there that we could get uh, pretty good deals. So we we provide them exclusive rights to that vertical. And so let's say we're negotiating for a lawn mowing uh, contract with an OEM that does lawn mowing. We would give them exclusive rights to any IP developed with any of the other verticals for that market. Mm-hmm. And we would jointly own that IP. So they would own it and we would own it and have the rights to use it in any other market. So that's what some of these companies really like is that there's millions of IP coming in every year from other markets with IP they can actually leverage. So mowing, for example, we've got indoor cleaning going where they don't have GPS. So they're doing just slam-based navigation with lasers, no infrastructure. Now that mowing guy gets exclusive rights to use that outdoors. So if he's near a building, under trees, on a golf course, near a house, that navigation that was paid for by a cleaning OEM, now he has exclusive rights to that. Oh, so wow. he doesn't have to pay the full bills. So we're getting, we have many of these verticals that are all contributing uh, multiple millions a year each into an IP portfolio that they all get exclusive rights for their vertical. So that that's one of the big pros of how we've structured it and why they like that kind of multiple they get on their money. That's smart. So with the, the mowing example would, uh, well, I guess a couple questions. One is, you know, you get paid for development. Do you also get a royalty on that? And then, uh, um, like, can they sell it? Do they sell the technology to other mowing companies or they keep it themselves? No. So there's definitely some guidelines around the transfer. Okay. Uh, we, we take that seriously, but yes, we get licenses for every unit they sell and they can use it throughout their market. If they want to sell those rights to someone else, that gets a little scary as you don't want to violate any of your other agreements. And so if they sold it to a big uh, OEM that had lawn mowing as well as uh, mining drills, that's likely unlikely, <laughs> but <laughs> they wouldn't be allowed to do that because then it would violate our our exclusive agreements in mining. Gotcha. So we just have to be careful, especially if it's a source code escrow kind of thing, that we're not uh, violating any of the other partner agreements. Oh, interesting. Well, that's a great way you structured it. I never, yeah. Uh, so, I, so I was curious, what was uh, back in two thousand? What was? Well, it sounds like you're working with John Deere, um, but what was the first project you worked on? The, around the around automating there were two um one that we had started in my basement which was the robot called chaos which is a walking tracked vehicle and we convinced the military to fund those through some sbir grants and then in parallel we were doing the john deere orchard uh, vineyard spraying tractor and so the getting farmer out of the chemicals uh driver was the motivation there and there was definitely customer demand and so those are really the two that began was more of a military rescue type uh, ground robot with an arm on it and high mobility and then this farm tractor interesting and um, so with the orchard tractor was that completely autonomous or was it guided by uh... yeah completely autonomous really so it would go up and down the rows and spray and then go down the next yep. row and spray. Yeah. Huh. 
Yeah, so we'd done some of that with the Department of Energy at the university where we had multiple vehicles out coordinating spraying-type applications for neutralizing a chemical spill or something for the Department of Energy. And so then we transitioned out and brought those kind of people. John Deere said we had to ditch the university-like computers and operating systems and coding approach and move to more professional product-type processes. And so brought those kind of people who knew how to do multi-vehicle planning and coordination and and so if one of them got a flat tire, the other one would take over and handle that kind of an orchard mission. Wow. And so that was definitely the idea. Yeah. And and how how's the so I'm curious how the technology has changed. Like, what, you know, how, can you describe the technology in order to implement that orchard uh, tractor then compared to what how you do it now? And if it, and how yeah, if it's different. Yeah, it's it's pretty similar. It's kind of embarrassing. I'm not sure if it's embarrassing <laughs> or a brag to say how long it's taken us to truly get thousands of units out in the field because, yeah, very similar. Cost points have come down on the LIDARs, but we were using LIDAR uh, 19, 18 years ago, and we were using radars and we were using computers, definitely bigger computers and more of them, uh, but very similar Sensor technologies, just lower cost, faster, higher fidelity. You get millimeters instead of centimeters kind of thing. But uh, general evolutionary changes to the technology and the drivers and cost, but not not very different as far as the algorithms. If there's something in front of you, stop. If you're in an orchard or if you're in a field, uh, you don't want to be chasing a cow and messing up your crops. So it's some pretty basic approaches to the intelligence of the vehicle hmm. and uh and so did you use do you ever use a gps too as part of that yep yeah yeah okay. they were definitely more expensive you're paying 50 grand for an wow. rtk solution where i mean you were you were getting nice four inch accuracy kind of things oh, with your then? own base station huh. yeah okay. but it was just incredibly expensive so so now you're you're almost an order of magnitude, fifty grand. Now you're at five grand, kind of price point. So that definitely starts to make it more practical for industry-wide sales and ag. And what's uh, what's one of your the favorite projects you worked on, as far as a Thomas vehicle? Well, I think that chaos robot is definitely my favorite. That's a it's a sad story because. There was never a single market that had enough traction in it for you to get the cost point where you could sell a lot of them. And so it's our most requested robot, and yet we could never invest the money to get the cost down. So that's that's really my sad story. But I think for excitement and fun, I think the golf course mowing we did with John Deere was uh, great back in 2001, 2002. Uh, definitely challenges with low cost positioning uh, when you're looking at uh, golf course mowers who get free golf and work for free or minimum wage so they can get free golf passes. Very hard to compete with them. But that was where you're really getting to the fidelity of an inch or two accuracy, making the really cool stripes in the fields. And wow. 
uh, really got got people excited about the technologies and the potentials. So that was definitely a fun era. And, and you know, with the let's say with that project, can you give us an idea of how long does it take from beginning to end to finish a project like that? Um, and if you disclose costs, that'd be great. But understand if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. Let's see. In I think time frames now. You're in a. It depends on the vehicle and the platform, and the level of drive-by-wire automation. But typically, you're in a six to eighteen-month kind of window for getting a product out there. So the new tractors you get are CAN bus controlled, uh, ISO bus class three kind of protocols where you can plug into that and have it automated in a half an hour. And because everything is commandable through that message set versus I'm going to take an off the shelf forklift and turn it into a robot or make a vehicle from scratch. Those definitely have a much longer development period. So it, it, it depends on the platform you choose and the level of its sophistication and electronics. Since if somebody came to you with a, a new vehicle, a new industry, and I can't think of one right now off the top of my head, would I mean, uh -huh. would, would that be a lot of, I mean, it sounds like there'd be a fair amount of overlap. Um, I'm sure there's always new use cases, but um, are the projects a little, a lot faster now too, because you already have this, the existing algorithms and the, the code base. Yeah, I think we've definitely tried to make the platform generic meaning the building blocks we have for the software at the command and control, the vehicle software intelligence, and the, the vehicle brain computer hardware that that is quickly adapted to whatever new application you're looking at. So we use the same computer brains, whether it's on a bulldozer, mining truck, uh, to a lawnmower, to a floor scrubber. So that's that's very quick. I think there, there are definitely those corner cases like, Hey, in a farm, you want to stay away from obstacles in a cleaning, a, a Walmart, you want to get as close to the obstacle as you can and get it clean. So some, some scenarios like that, that are a little bit different. And then the other difference is the safety guidelines. So if you're ISO 26262 in an automotive space, there's some other ISO standard that we're working on for mining or for ag, and they'll have a, a little bit different tweak in functional safety and the development guidelines and perhaps the color of the beacons or the, the process, uh, the emergency stop uh, protocols and interlocks. So there's definitely some corner cases on the application and then some safety parameters uh, to be compliant with the standards. And I was curious about the, the safety because some of the equipment you work on is not small and all of it's pretty much is pretty much dangerous um i mean how do you how do you ensure and of course we read about you know like the tesla crashing and that's going to happen uh how, how do you uh handle safety and have you had many uh had many accidents over the years <laughs> um we haven't we haven't had any accidents really? um wow. the i mean when you're testing something new um in your own proving ground, yep. they're definitely, hey, we're going to test this new algorithm and it didn't steer right and stay on the road. And then you you pull it out of the ditch and put it back on the road. But as far as release to customers and or anybody getting hurt at our facility or outside, there hasn't been any issues. Uh, so the 
I guess the the approach has really come from the aerospace and the automotive where they've done exhaustive analysis on best practices for developing redundant systems that keep people out of harm's way. And so there are very standard approaches and most ISO standards uh, come from those two industries and then are adapted for mining and then for ag and then for cleaning. So they have done a very good job at the, the analysis of the risks, um, analyzing the, the likelihood of that risk, the uh, the seriousness of that risk, and putting numerical analysis around that. So as you design a system, you are addressing it with design and with standard operating procedures to make sure that no one will get hurt. So it's it's definitely hard to predict what humans are going to do, uh, but you try to follow these numerical analyses so that you can show you follow best practices. You've done everything that the industry has indicated is a safe approach to design. And you just hope that uh, people are wise. And I, there's an example of Nightscope where the little kid tried to give him a hug, or the security robot. That is not a scenario you typically <laughs> think about. Right. And so, and we have a security robot that we're releasing with Sharp out of Japan. And so that is one of the safety cases that we have to look at is if that kid really wants to have an uh, an intimate <laughs> hug with that robot or some kind of interaction, how do you address that safely? Uh, those aren't trivial scenarios to uh, address in the right way. And uh, we do our best following the best practices and hope for the best. And as far as running into something, you know, you talk about redundant systems. So, so would that mean, you know, you have LIDAR, but would you also have um, other sensing te- another sensing tech behind that in case the LIDAR didn't pick up something? Or um, Yeah, uh, it's different for each system, but in the security space, we have more of a, a 3D camera. We have a, a bumper, and then we have a, a LIDAR. I think those are the three levels on that vehicle. Then for other applications like uh, mining, we've got LIDAR and then we've got radar and and sometimes stereo vision depending on the, the speeds and the, the dust levels in the environment. Um, so there's, there's typically some different type of technology that is used to provide a, another level of safety of some sort. And and can you give a well this is gonna be hard, but a a brief description of how the tech works. Like whether it's for the security vehicle or another one, you know, you have all these sensors that you bring this data in, you analyze it, and then you know, you, the vehicle makes a decision. And uh can you kinda is it possible to walk us through that without spending maybe an hour on it? <laughs> ah, the the basic intelligence of navigating its world and accomplishing its yes. objectives. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it it's pretty similar for all of them, but a mining truck it is given its high level uh, we call it an artificial intelligence engine that as a new truck is powered up and they want to move it into an AI assigner for this certain area of a mine, 
then that artificial intelligent agent takes over that as control of that vehicle. And so it might have four or five already or 10 or whatever. It will start to do the analysis of, I need you to load from here and I want you to dump over here and it will optimize the traffic path and then send that path down to the vehicle. Now that vehicle starts to navigate from that shovel to that dump site. And as it encounters differences, like there's a truck stopped in the middle of the road blocking it, or that intersection is blocked, I need to turn around and dynamically avoid the kangaroo. Those kinds of real-time decisions are happening onboard the vehicle. The high-level control said you just need to get the stuff from here to over here. And then as that vehicle navigates that, it's local intelligence onboard the vehicle and its sensors uh, provide the information to navigate those kind of real-time surprises uh, to still accomplish its mission. And so it will go and dump the load of gold, and then it will go back to the shovel, again, planning the optimal path. And the shovel, it'll back up to the shovel. That guy will then load it manually, and then he'll push a button saying you're loaded go dump again, and then it'll go through the same process of intelligently navigating there. Interesting. That's a good description. I mean, so, that was off the cuff. That was pretty yeah, good. So, <laughs> yeah, so there's levels of intelligence, and there are better people to describe it, but there's intelligence at the high level, and then there's intelligence on the vehicle. And you're also doing this traffic management we call choreography, which is you want to maximize the flow of gold out of that mine. And so if you have service trucks or unloaded trucks, you want the loaded trucks to have the priority through the intersections. And so there is this speed, uh, this uh, dynamic speed control that is changing the, the vehicle speeds in the area to assure that the loaded trucks always have the priority and the unloaded truck will slow down so it doesn't uh, cause an, uh, a block at an intersection and things like that. So there's multiple levels of intelligence that are all pushing towards safety and optimizing of the the operation, which may be gold, it may be farming, getting the wheat out of the field, whatever, but um, optimizing those with the best algorithms you can come up with. Interesting. All right. Well, and we're getting near the end of the interview. I've got two or three more questions. And one is, uh, it's kind of about the future. I was going to ask you about, you know, what's your vision for the future of autonomous vehicles, but that's kind of a, you could also answer if you can. Uh, you know, what projects are you looking for to, to work on? Like, what's kind of interesting? You, what's what's interesting you right now? And uh, yeah. Oh, I think there's a couple on my radar right now. Mowing is one that we've got three or four mowing manufacturers talking to us. Uh, some are small with niche mowing, and some are very large consumer side, and so landing a deal there. I think the people mover is an interesting one that is getting some investment right now where you've got these driverless buses moving around Disneyland, that kind of thing. So we've gotten some inquiries there. And then the third one would be the food delivery in town. I think we've gotten some inquiries. I I don't know how serious they are, how much money they have, but I need to deliver pizza to this address. Mm. Some of the challenges of navigating city streets with uh, traffic lights, that kind of thing, brings up some unique challenges. It'll leverage our indoor navigation. 
you know, leverage the obstacle detection and avoidance and all of those things. But now I've got traffic lights and the crosswalks where uh, people are making right turns on reds, even though I have a walking sign, that kind of thing looks like a fun challenge. And we'll have to see if we get one of those deals. Hmm, interesting. Okay. And, and uh, what, so of course, self-driving cars all over the news, you know, what advice would you have for those companies or what problems do you think they're going to have that maybe they're not uh, foreseeing? Because you probably have more experience than almost anybody on the planet with uh, autonomous vehicles. Yeah, I think the, the challenge is definitely those corner cases, uh, those exceptions. That uh, and, like, like the, and like so the I think the <laughs> yeah, exactly that that funky thing that you've never seen, even in your two million miles. Uh, you could go out on the street and set up a scenario it's never seen. How many millions of miles do you get to before you don't hurt someone in those uh, exceptions? Because I can, I can model a lot of these environments that I'm already in for most of the things that will happen. But now I start driving down a city street with kids and people playing in the yards, those kinds of things. There is uh, just a whole nother level of complexity beyond a farm, a mine, uh, a Walmart, those kinds of environments. So I think that is the challenge there. It's hard to wrap functional safety and meantime between failures when you have the randomness of an urban environment in communities where you have people and bicycles and all of those. So I think that's that's definitely a hard nut to crack. It's going to take a lot of time and I'm going to bite off the low hanging fruit first. <laughs> I wish them luck. And I'm really not, uh, looking to compete with the, the, the 70, 80, hundred companies now that are really trying to chase that where wow. I've got, I've got near monopoly or very few people in each of these verticals that I'm currently in. So yeah, I'll smart. keep it. Yeah. One of these companies come try to buy you. Not that you would sell, but, um, <laughs> yeah, we're definitely we're definitely getting offers. We've ever since we started, but only in the last eighteen months to two years have we really had the private equity and venture folks calling weekly. Well, they wouldn't return my calls in two thousand eight, but <laughs> now it's it's tough to get rid of them. So my thing is kind of like Mark Cuban said: if you're if you have an exit strategy, you're not passionate enough about your business. I have no desire to exit ever. And, and so that kind of money isn't of interest, but strategic money, whether it's for uh, developing something that is of interest to them, whether it's for equity or not, they're in it for the long haul. They're in it because they're passionate about being successful in that vertical. That's the kind of money that I'm in, that I am interested in. And so that's, it's, it's great that the, the industry is getting the excitement. Uh, but we're definitely not looking to exit and trying to build a, a world leading company. So that's the plan currently. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's, that's inspiring. And that's a good way to end it. Although I still need to ask about basketball. I think you listed, I forgot where you put it. It was one of your bio, bios. <laughs> I saw basketball. So did you grow up playing basketball or what? Uh, what where did yeah, you I'm, come? I am a fanatic. I, again, <laughs> I was born in the middle of nowhere. And so, a high school of 37 kids, I got to to start oh, wow. <laughs> on the basketball team. And so 
if you could walk, you made it. <laughs> and so ever since then, I've played three to four times a week. So wow. I'm still shuffling around at 40, how old am I, 46. I still shuffle around, get up at 4.30, 4.40, and go in and play with a bunch of old guys at school. And uh, and then I'm a Utah Jazz fan and follow them pretty closely. And, but just love the sport, love the team element of it. And yeah, I hope to play it till I die. What's well, yeah? Well, that's healthy. That's impressed. I'm impressed you play that much. That's that's, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, I've got tons of uh, different braces on to keep me from <laughs> falling apart, and we try to keep our feet low to the ground and shuffle safely. But well, definitely enjoy it. You need to uh, develop an exoskeleton so that yeah. Right, so then I... <laughs> I'm about due to start using one. That's for sure. <laughs> well, uh, Mal, I definitely appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat, and this has been a like I said, inspiring. And I love that you created this without uh, taking outside cash for, for equity and you figured out how to make it work and make it work in a big way. And, uh, yeah. And I did, I mean, did, when you started this, did you, did you think that autonomous vehicles would be this big 16 years later? Well, I was probably a naive optimist and believe it would happen a lot sooner, but, <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I think, Finally, the demand is there. Uh, we've got either Trump is going to shut down the borders or Hillary's going to raise the minimum wage, and that's just pushing automation all the faster. The demand is seems to be converging with the cost of the technology, and and so it's a very exciting time. So it, it's kind of a finally we're we're right there versus some of the. Uh, destination thinking where I was getting a little frustrated it was taking so long to get OEMs comfortable with the liability risk and getting the price points where people could afford it and so it's an exciting time uh thrilled to be where we're at yeah and you're young you got many years to make this happen even on even on a bigger scale which is cool all right well um definitely like I said definitely appreciate it and uh yeah what you built is pretty impressive so Thanks for sharing your story and uh, uh, teaching us all about what you do and what you've learned over the years. Oh, well, uh, definitely honored to be a part of the show. Uh, stay in touch. We'd love to keep you updated as we move into the high quantities of a lot of these new markets. So, Yeah, that'd be excellent. Yeah, and so Mel, thanks again, and thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of Flower Labs. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mel.